Welcome to the teaching and preaching ministry of Second Baptist Church, where we exist to delight in God, display His grace, and declare His gospel all through Jesus Christ our Lord. We can be reached at www.secondbaptist-mtv.com or by calling 618-244-1706. We trust you'll be encouraged and challenged by the message you're about to hear. Would you pray with me? Father, now we come to this most holy moment where the inerrant, inspired, perfect Word of God is opened and preached. And so we ask that by your Spirit you would come and you would speak. Lord, what we have not, would you give us? What we know not, would you teach us? And what we are not, would you make us? And would you do it for our joy and everlasting good and for your glory and the glory of your Son? We pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, church, let me ask you, if you would please this morning, to take your Bibles and to turn with me to the book of 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 1. We are beginning this morning, as many of you know, uh, a brand new series in the letter of 1 Timothy. I'm excited to walk with you through this letter over the next several months, verse by verse, 1 Timothy together. It's going to be a great study. 1 Timothy, as many of you probably know, is one of three letters that is often referred to as the pastoral epistles. These were letters that were written by the Apostle Paul to two different men who were serving alongside him in ministry, to Timothy and, if you remember, to Titus we saw a few years ago. And so these three letters then, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus, are Paul's instructions here for how these men are to serve and to lead in the churches where he has sent them as his apostolic delegates. And so this letter then, the letter of 1 Timothy, it is a pastoral letter. Warning that that title, the, the pastoral epistles, that isn't always a very helpful title. And here's why. Because unfortunately, it, it sort of gives the impression then that these letters are just for pastors, right? I, I'm not a pastor, and so this letter, it, it isn't really for me. It doesn't really pertain to me. It's not really addressing me. So how, how does this letter then apply to me? I mean, shouldn't this letter just be read then by pastors and by church leaders? Why devote the next several months to studying 1 Timothy when it hardly seems relevant for my life? Why study this pastoral letter that's about leading a church? And church, I want you to hear me say this morning that this pastoral letter is extremely relevant for your life. I, I love the, that old hymn that we just sang a moment ago, The Church is One Foundation. You know that hymn? Many of you are familiar with that hymn? Interestingly, Lauren and I had that hymn sung at our wedding 
14 years ago next month. Now, why would you sing a hymn about the church at a wedding? Well, the first line of that hymn that we just sang goes like this. The church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. She is his new creation by water and the word. From heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride. With his own blood he bought her. And for her life he died. Beloved, the reason that you and I should care about studying the letter of 1 Timothy is because the church is very important to God. With his own blood he bought her. And for her life, he died. The church is extremely important to God. And so if the church is that important to God, then guess what? It should be that important to us as well. I wonder what your view of the church is. You and I, we live in a day and age where we have minimized the importance of the church. We live in a day and age where gathering with the church is seen as optional where church attendance is even more sporadic than it was before the pandemic. Many are unattached. Many are unengaged and disconnected. Membership in a local church doesn't mean much today. It, it doesn't seem important or it seems unnecessary. The church, it just isn't a priority for many Christians today. Or there are many out there today who are sadly have been hurt by the church whether it be fights or church splits or bad leadership or unhealthy church bodies, and so they have given up on the organized church. But hear me say this morning that the church is very important to God. In fact, that line from the hymn we just sang a moment ago, it actually comes from Acts chapter 20. In Acts chapter 20, Paul is giving his final farewells, his final goodbyes to the, the elders at the church at Ephesus, which interestingly is the church that Timothy is now charged with leading here in the letter we're about to look at. But as Paul, he gathers these elders together for what will be perhaps his final time to see them. He has this sense he'll never see them again. And so he gathers these elders together whom he loves, this church that he planted these elders whom he's appointed, and he gives them one final charge in Acts chapter 20 and verse 28. Look there, it says this, Paul says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers or pastors to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. How important is the church to God? Beloved, it is so important that he bought it with his own blood. That Jesus came, he took on flesh, he lived and died and bled to purchase her with the very blood of God. And so if the church is that important to God, it should be that important to us as well, amen? And now as God's redeemed people, as the church, his desire is that we would now reflect this new identity in our life together. So that as the watching world looks at the church, they would see a reflection of the glory of God. That's huge. 
That's huge. The glory of God in our life together and in how we function and how we're ordered and how we're led and how we view relationships with one another and how we worship and in all of life together. And the letter of 1 Timothy is going to show us how. How to understand the nature and the purpose of the church. We're going to see in this letter God's plan, God's design for the church. So let's begin this morning by asking that question. What is the purpose of this letter? What is the purpose of this letter? I I hinted at it a moment ago, but I want to ask that question. Why did the Apostle Paul write the letter of 1 Timothy? Well, it isn't very often, it's it's pretty minimal actually in the Bible, where the biblical authors give us a clear, concise purpose statement for why they write their letters, why they're writing. Oftentimes, we have to look for clues in the letter. We have to sort of discern the purpose of the letter. But in 1 Timothy, Paul tells us exactly why he wrote this letter. Why don't you turn there with me in chapter 3, look at verses 14 and 15. Here we see why Paul wrote this letter. He says in verse 14, I hope to come to you soon, Timothy. He never did. He never returned to Ephesus. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that... So here's here's the purpose he's writing. Here's the reason he wrote this letter. If I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. So the Apostle Paul tells us he's penned this letter so that Timothy would know how the church is to behave. That's why he wrote the letter. Now let's just spend a few moments then unpacking that purpose statement before we jump into the the opening verses of this letter. Because this is important. And, And Paul says his letter is so that you and I would understand the nature and the purpose of the church. First, just notice there with me in this purpose statement the names and the titles that Paul uses to describe the church. How does Paul describe the church? What does he think about the church? Well, notice there in verse 15, first he says that the church is the household of God. It's the household of God. In other words, the church is a family. The church is a household, he says. When you think about the church, when you think about this church, is that the first thought that comes to your mind? A family. But this is how Paul says we are to relate to one another in the church. We are to relate to one another as a family. This is why he says later, if you notice in chapter 5, in verse 1, He says there, do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Treat younger men like brothers, older women like mothers, younger women like sisters in all purity. The church is a family. This is how we care for one another. This is how we relate to one another. This is how we honor and love and respect one another. Now, I I don't know... If many of you come from healthy biological families, maybe you didn't have a good home life growing up, maybe you're estranged from your family, but Paul says 
that the church is designed by God to function as a family, the household of God, which means that the church isn't a one-hour event that you attend every week, nor is the church simply a, a spectator event where you just sit on the sidelines. No, the church is to be a family. And when you become part of the family of God, when you become a child of God, you are adopted in, you are placed in this family, and this community now becomes just as much a part of your identity as your new identity in Christ. And so it's that vertical identity of being a, a child of God that gets lived out horizontally in this new family. The New Testament knows nothing of Christians who aren't intimately connected to and part of a local church family. It is the household of God. Next, though, notice in verse 15, he says that the church is the church of the living God. The living God. The church is the only institution and entity that Jesus promised to build. If you remember in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The church is what Jesus promised to build. The church, the ecclesia, the gathering, the assembling, that's what it means. The church assembles, the church comes together. And notice she belongs to God. She is the church of the living God. This is the living God's church. And so Paul, he wants to elevate your view of the church. And then in verse 15, notice he says she is to be a pillar and buttress of the truth. Paul is using here imagery of a building to describe what the church is and what the church does. In other words, the church is to uphold the truth. Churches to protect the truth. Look there, verse 15. She is to be a pillar. A pillar. It upholds and supports a building. And so also she is a buttress, or you could say a foundation. So Paul is saying that the church exists as a foundation and support of the truth. She is to serve as this strong, immovable witness in the world. The world, the culture, they may change, but the church and her witness must never change. She is a pillar. She is the buttress of the truth. Now, the question is, what is the truth? What's the truth he's talking about? Well, notice he tells us in the very next verse. Verse 16, look there. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He, Christ, was manifested in the flesh, that's incarnation, vindicated by the Spirit, that's death and resurrection, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. So what is the truth? In other words, the truth is the truth of the gospel. It is the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and faith in Him. That's the truth. That's the truth 
that the church is called to uphold. That's the truth the church is called to support and to protect. It's the truth of the gospel. Now, this truth, it goes by actually many names in the letter of 1 Timothy. We see here, verse 15, it's just called the truth. Verse 16, it's the mystery of godliness. If you look over in chapter 3, verse 9, deacons are to be those who hold firmly to the mystery of the faith, he says. Back in chapter 1, verse 10, we'll see this truth is also referred to as sound doctrine. Verse 11, chapter 1, is called the gospel. In chapter 4, he's going to refer to it a couple of times as just the faith. Chapter 6 and verse 3, it's the teaching. Verse 14, it's the commandment. At the very end in chapter 6 and verse 20, he calls it the deposit that is entrusted to you. All of those are synonymous with the truth. This is the gospel. This is the message of Christ. This is the truth that the church is called to guard. In fact, Timothy is given this very solemn, very serious, important charge. Look at the end there of this letter in chapter 6, in verse 20, where he says, Paul says, Oh, Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Now just hear the seriousness in Paul's voice. Oh, Timothy. And I think he would say, Oh, Second Baptist. Guard it. Protect it. Guard the truth. Protect the gospel. So how do we do that? How does the church function as a, as a pillar and a, and a buttress, upholding and protecting the truth? How do we guard the gospel? Well, as we'll see in this letter, I think there are two ways Paul is going to show us how. Here's the first one. How do we protect it? We guard and protect the truth of the gospel by teaching sound doctrine. We protect it by teaching sound doctrine. We'll see it here in a moment, but this letter, it was written in part to combat and to counter false doctrine. That's why the letter begins, if you notice back in chapter 1 and verse 3, where Paul is going to charge Timothy to combat false teaching. And then at the end of this letter... Again, chapter 6 and verse 20, he tells him to guard it, guard the deposit. So notice how this letter, it is bookended here with the need for Timothy to teach sound doctrine. This is how we guard it. We, we guard the gospel by teaching sound doctrine and by pointing out error. Doctrine matters. There are many churches today where doctrine isn't important. It's just assumed There's no deep teaching of the Word of God, and it's evident in the sort of flimsy Christians it's producing. Doctrine matters, and we must teach sound doctrine. But there's also another way here that we're going to see that we protect and we guard the truth of the gospel. Not only in preaching sound doctrine, but notice again in Paul's purpose statement there in chapter 3, he tells us the other way we protect the gospel. Chapter 3, look at verses 14 and 15 again. How do we guard it? Here's the second way. We guard and protect the truth of the gospel 
by how we live as a church. We guard it by how we live. Look at verses 14 and 15. I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. So Paul says, the reason he's writing is so that we would know how to act. We would know how to behave as God's church. There's a certain way we are to live within the church that accords with the truth of the gospel. And by that we protect it. By how we live. One commentator says, Paul sets forth the gospel both as right belief and right behavior as the key antidote to heresy. The key antidote to heresy, right belief, right behavior. So in other words, you could say that this letter is a manual. It is a blueprint, hence the graphic, of church life. And this behavior, this right living, we're going to see it flows from the truth of the gospel. That's why over, notice in chapter 6 and verse 3, Paul's going to say, if anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching, notice this, that accords with godliness. Right doctrine shapes right living. And this is why we must guard the gospel. Because God intends for our behavior to be shaped by what we believe. So the gospel shapes our life together as a church. And everything we do as a church is to be informed and to be shaped by this gospel. That's how we guard it. That's how we protect it. And so here's what we're going to see in this letter. We're going to see how the gospel is to shape the way we pray. How the gospel shapes the way we interact with governing authorities. How the gospel shapes how we lead and how we choose our leaders in the church. The gospel shapes how we talk. The gospel shapes how we pursue holiness and godliness and how we care for one another in the church. The gospel shapes how modestly we dress and how we view gender roles of men and women in the church and how we view money and how we view possessions and how we do evangelism. The gospel shapes all of those things. Every area of our life must be shaped by this gospel. And then as we believe rightly, and as we behave rightly, we will be a model to the world of God's church. And brothers and sisters, this is how we will impact our culture. This is how we will stand out in this culture. This is how the gospel is going to make an impact in this community and in this church, is when you and I are allowing the gospel to shape every part of our life. So do you see how this letter is extremely relevant for you? Now, that's all introduction. Bear with me. That's the purpose of the letter. So let's just jump in now for a few moments into the opening salutation of this letter in verses 1 and 2. And I, I recognize as we look here at verses 1 and 2 and we read them together, there are many of you 
who will be tempted to rush past these verses. So let me just allow the great Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones to have the first word before we read these verses together. Look at what Lloyd-Jones says. He says, I suppose that all of us must in varying degrees plead guilty to the tendency to regard the introductions of these New Testament epistles as being more or less formal. We tend to regard the introductions as unnecessary and that we can skip over them in order that we may hurry on to the great message that follows. We often feel that these preliminary verses and salutations are unimportant and have nothing to do with truth or doctrine. And so we tend to read them very quickly and rush on to what we believe to be part of the essential teaching. But that is profound error. It is always good to pay attention so that an author at the outset what he deems necessary and important. And in these preliminary salutations, we find aspects of truth that are vital and essential. Vital and essential. So, let's, let's read these two opening verses together this morning. Look here with me. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I want to look at these verses with you just under four headings this morning. These are really just kind of hooks to hang your hat on as we walk through these verses together. Let me give them to you, and then we'll walk through them very briefly. Number one, I want you to the author, number two, the occasion, number three, the recipient, and then number four, the gospel. The author, the occasion, the recipient, and the gospel. And I think what we'll find will be aspects of truth that are vital and essential here. So first, I want you to notice with me the author. Look at the author there in verse 1. Who wrote First. Timothy. Well, notice in verse 1, we read, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. Now, so that we aren't guilty of, as Lloyd-Jones says, skipping over, rushing past this as unimportant, unnecessary, I want you to just pause for a moment to consider with me who it is that writes this letter. Verse 1, this is, notice, Paul. Now, that name right there, especially for those of us who are familiar with this name, we know Paul, we, we, we are familiar with Paul, that name right there, it should land on you like a bomb. And here's why. Because it should remind you of the remarkable, transforming power of this truth we're called to guard. In verse 1, this Paul is the very same Saul, the Jewish Pharisee who hated the church of God. In Acts chapter 9, Paul was breathing out, it says, murderous threats against the church. This is the same Paul breathing out murderous threats. It's the same Paul who stood by approvingly in Acts chapter 7 as the first Christian martyr Stephen was stoned to death. It's the same Paul in Acts chapter 8 and verse 3 who was ravaging the church. That's the very same Paul that we see here in verse 1. 
In fact, if you look in chapter 1, notice down in verse 13, as Paul is reflecting here on his past and who he was, he says in verse 13, formerly, I was a blasphemer, I was a persecutor, I was an insolent opponent of the church. That's the same Paul who is writing this letter. And so we must ask the question, okay, what changed? What changed? How, how, how did this man go from being a church-persecuting Pharisee to a church-planting apostle? How does something like that happen? I'll tell you how it happens. He came face-to-face -face with the risen Jesus. And he was transformed. Acts chapter 9, road to Damascus. Friends, this is only possible because of the life-changing, life-transforming power of the gospel. And this man who was on his way at that very moment to persecute Christians in other cities, he meets the risen Christ and he's changed. He's never the same. And beloved, the same is true for the most hardened person you know. I don't care if it's a family member or a coworker or a neighbor or a friend. The same life-transforming, saving power that took hold of Saul isn't beyond saving anybody. This gospel still changes lives. But then, in verse 1, notice Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. Now again... Many of you are aware of this, you know this, but consider this. What is an apostle? Now that word apostle, it could be used in the generic sense of the word just to mean a, a messenger, just a, a sent one, but Paul has in mind here a, a very specific group of men who have been uniquely and divinely and authoritatively commissioned as representatives of Jesus Christ himself and his message. And Paul, notice, he labels himself here in verse 1 an apostle of Christ Jesus in that sense of the word. New Testament scholar Bill Mounts comments, Paul begins his letter here on a note of authority. Authority. So in other words... Paul is speaking here on behalf of, he is speaking here with the authority of Jesus Christ himself. Verse 1, an apostle of Christ Jesus. So the message that he is delivering here is Christ's message because he has been uniquely given the authority to speak to the church on behalf of Jesus. And he does so, notice in verse 1, by the command of God. So Paul, get this, he's not just some self-appointed apostle as if he just wanted the job. No, he is, he is making it abundantly clear that he has been personally called, personally chosen, personally commissioned by God. This is by divine appointment. And it is, it is the absolute strongest possible claim to authority. I am an apostle 
of Christ by the command of God. Now, as I thought about that, and I considered Paul's close relationship to Timothy, as we're going to see here in a moment, his, his beloved partner and friend who he's going to call his true child in the faith. As I thought about that, I thought to myself, okay, why is Paul in this personal letter to Timothy, from the very outset of it, why is he asserting here his apostolic authority? I mean, Timothy knows who he is, right? Timothy is not questioning Paul's apostolic authority, so why is he telling him this? I think there's two reasons, at least. Here's the first reason. Here's the first reason he's wanting you to know from the very beginning is apostolic authority. I think it's because this is evidence here that this letter, while it's addressed personally to Timothy, isn't just for Timothy. It is for the whole church. In fact, it's for Second Baptist Church. Paul isn't just writing for Timothy, he's writing for all of us. In fact, if you look at the very end, just notice this, very end, last verse, verse 21 of chapter 6, it concludes this letter, Paul does, by saying, grace be with you, and you probably have a footnote at the bottom of your page there that says the Greek for you is plural. I wish they would have just translated it that way. In Texas, we'd see a grace be with y'all, okay? You all. Meaning, I think this letter is, yeah, it's written for Timothy, but it is to be read, it is to be heard, it is to be obeyed by all. So he wants the entire church to know and understand his authority as an apostle of Christ. I think that's the first reason he's asserting here his apostolic authority. It's for the church to overhear this because maybe they're questioning his apostolic authority. There's another reason, I think. And I think it's the main reason here. I think it's because Paul wants to remind young protege Timothy. He wants to remind the church at Ephesus. Brothers and sisters, he wants to remind you and I that the words that he's writing here are in fact the very words of God himself. That as we listen to Paul's words in this letter, we are actually listening to the words of Jesus himself. You cannot separate the words of Paul from the words of Jesus. So these aren't Paul's opinions. No, these are the the very words of God to the church. And so as, as we sit under the words of Paul here and, and in the letter of 1 Timothy over the next several months together, we are sitting under, we are listening to the very words of God himself. So this isn't primarily Paul's words. These are God's words. And here's why that matters. Because People, especially in our culture today, they don't like authority, do they? And the problem with that, however, is that everybody, whether they realize it or not, lives under an authority. Everybody lives under authority. Perhaps your authority is church tradition. This is what I've always known. This, this is the way I was raised, right? This is what I know. This is the way we've always done it, which, by the way, is a terrible reason to continue to do something. 
It's the way we've always done it. This is all I've known. My authority is church tradition. I don't care what the Bible says. Or perhaps your authority is your feelings. If it feels good, if it feels right, that trumps it all. It trumps what the Bible has to say. Who are you to tell me what I can and can't feel? Maybe your authority is your feelings. Maybe your authority is cultural opinion. Pressure to change and conform based on what the culture says is right. And so then the question remains is, will we live under the authority of what God has said and His Word? I was thinking this week of how this relates directly to the letter of 1 Timothy. Get this. Paul is going to address two very current cultural hot-button issues in the first 35 verses of this letter. Two of them. For example, notice chapter 1, verse 10. He's going to call out the sexually immoral and men who practice homosexuality. Is that a hot-button issue? Or or look in chapter 2, verse 8 through 15. He's going to speak to gender roles for men and women in the church. Is that a current issue today? You betcha. And so the question is, are we going to listen to what the culture has to say, or are we going to listen to what God has to say? What authority are you going to listen to? And so we have to bring our thoughts and our feelings and our lives under the authority of God's Word. And Paul, as an apostle, speaks here with the authority of God and what he says about the church and what he says about gender. That's what is true. And that's what we must believe. And as he's writing as an apostle, he does so to address a very specific situation in the church. Here's the second thing. Notice the occasion. The occasion, verses 2 and 3. We have to know why he writes this letter, the occasion that's prompted it, the historical situation. So what prompted the letter of 1 Timothy? The New Testament scholar Doug Moo comments, all three pastoral epistles are written in the shadow of false teaching. They're written in the shadow of false teaching. So yes, The purpose of this letter, as we saw back in chapter 3, verse 15, is so that the church would know how to behave, but the occasion that prompted Paul to write this letter is false teaching. Look back in chapter 1, verse 3, we'll see next time, and look exactly at what this false teaching was, but look there in verse 3, Paul, he writes, notice, to counter false teachers who have crept into the church of Ephesus, where Timothy is put and placed by Paul. Look there, verse 3. As I urged you when I left, or when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. So according to verse 3, there are certain men here we see in the church that are teaching false doctrine. Later, Paul is actually, it seems, going to call some of them out by name. Chapter 1, verse 20. Hymenaeus and Alexander, it appears, but here he just calls them certain persons. 
So he's writing, notice, at least in part, to strengthen young Timothy in his role, to call out these false teachers in the church who are teaching, as he says in verse 3, a different doctrine. In Acts chapter 20, I mentioned this a moment ago, maybe I'm going to turn there. Acts chapter 20, it's very interesting in its connection here to 1 Timothy. Think about this. Paul, again, he's with the elders at the church at Ephesus, the same church that Timothy is now charged with leading. So, we've got a few letters written to the church at Ephesus. We've got Ephesians, we've got 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, they're mentioned in Revelation. And he says something so startling here, and, and, and I find it so weighty as a pastor. He says this in, in Acts chapter 20, verse 28, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. We saw that. But then look at verse 29. I know that after my departure from Ephesus, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among you, your own selves, will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Again, Doug Moo comments, Paul's prophecy here of these savage wolves coming in to attack the flock had come true. I don't know how he knew it, but he knew it was going to happen. Certain men teaching different doctrine. And so, sometime later, after Acts chapter 20, most, most scholars think that after Paul's first imprisonment in Rome, so this is Acts Paul revisits several churches, even perhaps maybe Ephesus. But in verse 3, notice he heads to Macedonia and he leaves behind Timothy, his apostolic delegate, to deal with this problem in the church at Ephesus. And he is writing here to encourage Timothy to address this issue of false teaching and to lead God's church. This is why, in verse 3, he's to charge them not to teach any different doctrine. This is why, notice chapter 1, verse 18, he's going to tell Timothy, wage the good warfare. This is why in chapter 3, he's going to tell Timothy to appoint elders who are able to teach sound doctrine and deacons who hold the mystery of the faith with the clear conscience. This is necessary in order to lead the church in guarding the gospel. And now we know why it's so important to Paul, don't we? As we said a moment ago, it's because right belief leads to right behavior. And so the church and the truth of the gospel, the church must guard it in the way that it lives. Truth is at stake here. And thus the church is at stake here. And ultimately the glory of God is at stake here. Because false doctrine is going to lead to, to sinful behavior. And that's exactly what's happening in the church at Ephesus. He says, oh, Timothy, guard it. Oh, Second Baptist Church, guard it. Third heading, the recipient. The recipient, look there at verse 2. Who is this letter written to? We've already established, I think, the, the bigger audience, the wider audience here is just more than just Timothy. But I, I don't want you to just consider Timothy with me for a moment. Who was Timothy? 
Notice in verse 2, you can almost feel Paul's affection and his love for this pastoral protege, Timothy. Look there at verse 2. He says, to Timothy, my true child in the faith. Now, in what sense was Timothy his true child in the faith? Well, in Acts chapter 16, you can turn there, Paul, he meets this young man, Timothy. Most scholars think that at that time, Timothy's probably a teenager. He meets Timothy as he's passing through Lystra on his second missionary journey. And so in Acts chapter 16 and verse 1, here's what we read, Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but the father, whose father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him. So notice, perhaps, perhaps Paul had led Timothy to Christ, but it seems, notice there in verse 1, his mother was a believer. 2 Timothy chapter 1, we see also his grandmother Lois was a believer, along with his mother Eunice. 2 Timothy 3.15, we know he's been acquainted with the Scriptures since he was a, a little boy, a child. But more likely, Paul had discipled Timothy. He had mentored young Timothy, and he recognized his potential. He recognized his godliness. And so he's going to ask Timothy to partner with him and be his traveling companion in his missionary work. Now, just think about this with me for a moment, okay? Six of Paul's letters are written with Timothy present, where he says, I and Timothy write these things to you. Six of his letters. Two of his other letters are also mentioning Timothy by name, and then two more are personally addressed to Timothy, which means that Timothy is in 10 of the 13 New Testament Pauline letters. This was quite a guy. That's why in Philippians chapter 2, in verse 20, he says, I have no one like Timothy. Why, Paul? Well, he goes on to say, for I have no one like him who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. They all seek their own interests, that's the false teachers, not those of Jesus Christ. In other words, the reason he's such a guy is because Timothy loves the church and Timothy loves Jesus. And so in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul says, he's my beloved and faithful child. And Paul trusted Timothy on missions alone to Macedonia and to Corinth and to Thessalonica and to Philippi and now to Ephesus. In fact, when Paul is sitting in a prison cell at the very end of his life, knowing he's about to face execution, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, he says to Timothy, do your best to come to me. He was a beloved partner in the gospel. He was, he was Paul's right-hand guy. But there are some things about Timothy we also know from Paul's writings that I find to be the most fascinating. Maybe it's because I'm a young pastor about Timothy's age. I, I find them fascinating. I find them encouraging. And I, I, I think they're going to be an encouragement to you as well because they're not exactly the kinds of things you would expect from a spiritual giant. A right-hand guy to Paul. Here's the first thing. Timothy was young. 
He was young. He's probably in his early 30s by the time Paul pens this letter. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 12, let no one despise you for your youth, he says. So, it seems Paul has to address the insecurities of Timothy, most likely because of his age. I'm sure there were times where Timothy felt way in over his head in ministry. I mean, look what he's called to do. Call out false teachers. He was perhaps way over his head, as every pastor feels sometimes, overwhelmed, burdened by ministry. He was young. He was also, we know, timid. He doesn't appear to be a very bold, assertive guy. First Timothy, we read about chapter 4, verse 12. No one despises you in your youth, but then in 2 Timothy, we see, he says, for God has given you, Timothy, not a spirit of fear. He, he doesn't seem to be a bold, assertive guy. He's not like, you know, what you'd find in the most leadership books today. No, he was young. He was, seems to be insecure. He was timid. He was fearful. Oh, and there's one more thing. He also had frequent ailments. First Timothy chapter 5, verse 23 he says, no longer drink only water, but use a little wine, or if you feel more comfortable, you can supply grape juice there. Use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. So get this, Timothy was young, Timothy was unsure, Timothy was fearful, Timothy was timid, oh yeah, and he was sickly. Frequent ailments. And this is Paul's right-hand guy? This guy? Guess what, friend? God isn't impressed with you. He is not impressed with your gifting. He is not impressed with your skill and your knowledge and your ability. No. Timothy was weak. You ever feel weak? That's a great place to be in ministry, to feel weak. And God is looking for Timothys. He's looking for guys and gals who recognize their own weakness, and they recognize their own inability, and they are dependent upon Him to work. That's why he'll say in 2 Corinthians 12, I boast all the more gladly in my weaknesses, Paul says. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And that was Timothy, and God loves to use our weakness in order to show off His power and to show off His glory. That was Timothy. But then finally, final heading, I want you to notice the gospel. The gospel, verses 1 and 2. And we see some amazing gospel truths here. In fact, from the of this letter, notice Paul, he wants to remind Timothy of the gospel right away. This gospel he's to guard, this gospel he is to protect, that is being distorted. He wants to remind him right off the bat what the gospel is. So what is the gospel? Let these words land afresh on you. Don't rush past them. Two things, just notice briefly. Our God and our need. Our God and our need. Look there first, our God. Look at verse 1. What is Paul's understanding of who God is? Verse 1. 
He's an apostle of Christ Jesus by the command of God, our Savior, and Christ Jesus, our hope. And then he bookends that, notice in verse 2, when he says, Grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. So who does Paul understand God to be? Notice that he is placing God the Father and God the Son, Jesus Christ, on the exact same level. Yes, they are distinct persons, but they are acting here as one. Paul is making a statement here about the deity of Christ. That this Jesus of Nazareth is the divine Son of God. He is the eternal incarnate Son of God. And he speaks of Christ's divine nature. In verse 1, notice this command comes from God the Father and Jesus the Son. And this grace, mercy, and peace flows to us from God the Father and God the Son. This is our God, Father, Son, Spirit. He's working out this plan of salvation. Because then notice, notice these beautiful titles that Paul ascribes to God. Look there in verse 1. He says, God is our Savior. He is our Savior. He is a God who saves. We don't save ourselves. He is a Savior. The gospel message isn't one of save yourself. No, you and I are in need of saving. And Paul says God is our Savior. Verse 1, this idea of God as Savior, it, it harkens back to the Old Testament where God is described as the Savior of Israel. Psalm 24, the God of our salvation. And church, this salvation, it comes to a climax in God Himself entering into time and space and to history and the saving work of Jesus Christ. And He has saved us from our sin by sending His Son to live and die and rise again so that we could experience this salvation. By faith in Him. In fact, notice over in chapter 2, in verse 4, Paul says that God desires all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. This is the only way of salvation. There is the only one who can save, he says. And no one is beyond this saving reach. Do you know him as Savior? He's God our Savior. But then notice he says, verse 1, Christ Jesus is our hope. He's our hope. So if God our Savior is looking backward to God's saving work in the first coming of Christ, then God our hope is looking forward to Christ's return when He comes again. This is our future hope. And this hope, it isn't wishful thinking. No, it is an eager confident anticipation of what is to come when He returns. He is our hope. And notice there in verse 1, hope is a person. Christ Jesus, our hope. And therefore this hope, it isn't some kind of subjective feeling or emotion. It doesn't waver based on your mood today. No, this hope is a person. It is an objective reality that comes from outside of us. 
Our hope is in Christ alone. It is certain. It's immovable. It's secure. Whether you feel it or not to be true. Christ is our hope. Brothers and sisters, our salvation, it is outside of us. And as long as we are looking inward at ourselves for hope, for assurance, we will constantly waver. No, we must look outside ourselves to Christ. This is why an alien righteousness. It is a righteousness that comes to us from outside of us. It has not come within us. No, Christ is our righteousness received by faith. And so as the great Robert Murray McShane says, for every look at yourself, take 10 looks at Christ. For every look at yourself, take 10 looks at Christ. Your hope, your salvation comes from outside of you. It comes from Christ. He is our God. This is our God. Which shows us something about ourselves. Right? And that's where Paul ends. Notice, finally, the need. The need. In light of the fact that we can't save ourselves, if we're going to be saved, it has to come from outside of us, and that God has worked in Christ to bring about this salvation, then what do we need? The great John Stott says on this verse, each word in the greeting of verse 2 tells us something about the human condition. Our need. What do we need? Here's what we need. Notice there in verse 2. We need grace. We need grace. Grace is God's kindness to guilty, undeserving sinners like you and me. We are in desperate need of grace. That is a one-word summary of God's salvation in Christ. It is all by grace. Again, stressing that this salvation comes as a free gift of God to undeserving sinners. We don't earn it. We don't deserve it. We can't attain it. It's all by grace. We need grace. And notice verse 2, we need mercy. We need mercy. Now that word mercy is actually unique to 1st and 2nd Timothy compared to the other opening greetings of Paul's letters where he says grace to you and peace, grace to you and peace, but here he says mercy and peace. Why? Why does he include mercy? Here's the answer. I don't know. I don't know. That word mercy, it's, it's often translated in Hebrew as hesed, loving kindness, which would have been a standard Hebrew greeting. Maybe Paul is, he is uh, drawing on Timothy's Jewish heritage here. We don't, we don't know for sure, but it seems that Paul understands, especially with Timothy's difficult task that lies ahead of him, he's going to need some mercy. In church, we need mercy. You need mercy. I need mercy. This community needs mercy. It needs the mercy of God. This is the emotive heart of God to give us what we don't deserve. Grace is not getting what we deserve. Mercy is getting what we don't deserve. And we need mercy. And then finally, 
We need peace. We need peace. This describes the objective relationship we now have with God through Christ. We have peace with God. Romans 5.1, therefore, since we have been justified, made right with God through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So this peace, it isn't, it isn't a feeling. It isn't an emotion. It is an objective reality. And this vertical peace that we have with God that exists now because of what Christ has done by reconciling us as enemies to the Father is now expressed horizontally in the church and in the way that we live with one another. It's all based on this position we now stand. And only gospel produces that. And church, it's this that we must guard. It's this that we must protect because this is the only hope of salvation. It's what Paul knew. It's what Timothy knew. He's a child in the faith. It's only received by faith, this salvation, this gift, this hope, this peace, this grace, this mercy. And it must shape our lives together as a church. And we must guard it. This is the church's one foundation. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the grace, the mercy, the peace that has been poured out on us through your Son. We thank you that we could never save ourselves. We could never earn our right standing with you. It only has come about through the work of your Son. And so we rejoice in the gospel today. And Lord, we ask that that same gospel, you would help us as a church to protect and to guard. And we ask that this same gospel would transform the way we live. It would change our life together, even within this church body, so that as the watching world looks at Second Baptist, they would see the glory of God. They would see the grace of the gospel. They would see the truth of Jesus Christ. Oh, may we guard it. May we protect it. And as we look at First Timothy in the days ahead, oh, we may we We trust you were encouraged by the message you heard. For more information about our church, visit us online at www.secondbaptist-mtv.com or call us at 618-244-1706. And thank you for listening.